would, please turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. We'll be looking at verses 22 through 33. It is also printed for you on page 5 of the bulletin. 2 Chronicles chapter 34, starting in verse 22. So Hilkiah and those whom the king had sent went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokath, son of Harash, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter and spoke to her to that effect. And she said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. And they brought back word to the king. Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the Levites and all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul. To perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. You may be seated. And as you do, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, your word stands to humble us, even as it humbled your servant Josiah back in these days. I pray that by your spirit you would do that very work in each and every one of us. That we would be humbled in the reality of your judgment against our sin. That we would be humbled in the greater reality of your mercy towards sinners like us. And that in humility we would then go forth and be like your servants here, walking in faithfulness to you. May I be faithful as a preacher of your word and may your people be faithful as hearers. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Nothing humbles a man like gravity. Physically, this principle is true. The law of gravity, that what goes up must come down, continues to hold sway thousands of years since it first started at creation. And gravity has humbled many throughout the millennia, both great minds and the not-so-great minds alike. Inventors, scientists, even athletes have all learned humility at the hands of gravity. So have countless others 
whose failures have been recorded and put up on various social media outlets that we love to watch and laugh at, those epic failures. But this principle also works figuratively. People in high positions always stand the risk of falling. Anyone who has either set themselves on a pedestal or been set up on a pedestal can only go in one direction, down. And history, as we know, is filled with plenty of examples of great men and women being humbled by gravity. Whether that gravity is their own pride and selfish ambition, whether that gravity is external consequences outside of their control, or even if that gravity is age and death. And in our study so far in 2 Chronicles 34, there exists, we find, an even greater humbling force than gravity. We have already seen it on display at various times. The product of humility is not the work of gravity, but the living and active word of God. We can rightly say nothing humbles a man like the word of God. The title of the series that we're working through in 2 Chronicles 34 and 35 is Josiah the Humble King. And we see here in this text his humility shine forth in these verses. Here we can definitely see and declare that Josiah was in fact a humble king. We witness it at the very beginning in verse 22 all the way through to the end of verse 33. And we see that humility is demonstrated by a recognition of and response to the Word of God. And as we saw last week, the Word of God that was read to Josiah was the Word of the Covenant given through the Law of Moses. We talked it was either likely the entirety of Deuteronomy or portions of it. And even today, the text calls it the Book of the Covenant of the Lord. So this theme of covenant is is the thread that holds this part of the narrative together. It is covenantal words that are read to Josiah and the people, and it's to the covenant they must then hear and respond. The points are printed for you at page 8 of the bulletin. We'll look at three. The pronouncement of covenant calamity, the promise of covenant compassion, and then the pursuit of covenant commitment. We will see that the covenant demanded humility in the people of God. And it demands the same for each of us this morning. And may the Holy Spirit give us a tender heart like he gave to Josiah, a humble posture before our covenant-keeping God. First, we start with the pronouncement of covenant calamity. We see this in verses 22 through 25. Everything that Josiah has inferred when the book of the law was read to him, he finds out is true. Disaster awaits the people of God. It's not hypothetical. It's not if then disaster will come. It is the reality on the horizon for Jerusalem and its inhabitants. For those of us who may like doomsday movies, I'm always good for a good doomsday movie. This, this is the part where the meteor is entering the Earth's atmosphere and the panic is starting to settle in. Or it's the part where the tidal wave is starting to crest. And people are running for the hills. Wrath is coming. Notice that there's almost a mere copy of verse 21, what Josiah proclaims, and verse 25, what the prophetess Huldah proclaims. Josiah says, For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us. And she confirms, Therefore, the Lord says, My wrath will be poured out on this place. 
It is that wrath that is the emphasis of these words given by the Lord through his faithful servant, Holder. And what is this wrath? What exactly is this disaster that the Lord is announcing through his faithful servant? It's simply covenant judgment. We will see that there's nothing random, there's nothing mysterious about what is about to come to Jerusalem. Look at verse 24. Where Huldah says, the word of the Lord, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah. What's coming? All the curses. We mentioned them last week. From Deuteronomy chapter 28, 15 through 68, 52 verses of covenant curses. Here's a few highlights. Cursed fruit of the womb in the ground. Pestilence and wasting disease. Heaven that's like bronze. Earth that's like iron. That's famine and drought. Defeat before enemies. The plagues of, I of Egypt being seen in Israel. And culminating in a siege that leads to some of the most horrific events you can witness in Scripture. And the end of it all is going to be exile. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. Israel stands to suffer what their covenant Lord promised they would suffer at the very beginning for their disobedience. They learn that the word of God has always been, will always be true in what it proclaims. Both the good things that it proclaims and the not so good things that it proclaims. The things we may not want to hear. So no one in Israel should have been surprised by this announcement. Like my children when I warn them that if you do this, here's the punishment that's coming. Israel knew. And just as the specifics of the judgment are tied to the covenant, so is the basis for this judgment. And at the most basic level, we find that covenant has been broken by the people of God. Israel has been unfaithful. They've been wayward. They've been rebellious. The Lord says this in verse 25. Look at it with me. Because they have forsaken me. They have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. This word forsaken is used throughout First and Second Chronicles. It is the picture of the cumulative turning away from God by successive generations. This sin did not suddenly pop up out of nowhere. It was a hallmark throughout the generations and even in the current generation. Yes, they may have been actively engaged in reform and purging and cleansing, but in no way were they innocent victims here. They're not simply throwing out their mom's trash, their dad's garbage. They're not going back to their parents' home and saying, well, look at these things. We should just toss them in the garbage. No, this was their garbage too. The burning piles of altars and images, while certainly a step in the right direction, they still were a full sensory engaging pointing to the nation's guilt. As they would see the fire and the smoke pointing to their idolatry. They would smell that aroma of burning wood and metal and even bones and be reminded of their rebellion. 
They would hear the crackling sound of burning and hear God's declaring judgment against their sin. Yes, Israel may be in the point of turning, but their guilt was still on display for all to see. Just look at the piles of fire throughout the land. Forsaking the Lord meant calamity was coming. And again, the words that we find here flow right out of the words of Deuteronomy. In this case, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 24 through 27, where the Lord warned that when you're in exile, people are going to ask you, why are you here? And this is what you can tell them. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to the land? What has caused the heat of this great anger? Then the people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord and went and served other gods and worshipped them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. Israel had been playing with fire for generations, and the bill for breaking covenant had come due. And the question then remained for them, would they be humbled by this pronouncement of certain judgment? And the same question is for us today. Will we be humbled by God's judgments against sin? For yes, it goes without saying that the nations, the kingdoms, and the rulers of this world stand to be humbled by the reality of God's judgments. All are guilty. Disaster is coming. However, we would be wise to recognize that this word is for us as well, his covenant people, the household for God, of God, whom Peter says judgment comes first. Because we, like Israel, are not faithful in keeping covenant. We are regularly and repeatedly and daily covenant breakers. No, we may not have images or altars set up in our homes, but certainly we have things that we worship, like comfort, pleasure, our own sense of autonomy and security. And there's certainly things that God has told us that we have abandoned. Things like honoring father and mother, valuing and seeking justice, upholding scripture's entire teaching on sexual purity, kindness towards other in word and in deed, truth in all areas of life. And if you think that list is a random list, it actually flows right out of Deuteronomy 27. We are not straight-A students when it comes to keeping covenant. So let us be humbled by God's word of judgment against our failure to live as his holy and righteous people. Let us let the word of God's covenant expose our sin. And then take that next step that we are about to see and hear his mercy. And so from this pronouncement, then, we move to the promise of God's covenant compassion. We see this in verses 26 through 28, where Huldah zero ends on what this means for Josiah. While there is no hope for Israel avoiding God's judgment, there remains the hope of still receiving his mercy. The Lord has not changed. He does, he does punish sin. He does not clear the guilty. But however, his unchanging nature means his covenant faithfulness, his mercy is still present. So then what we confessed just a few moments ago still holds true for both Israel at this time and for us today. 
that God will not always chide. He will not hold his anger forever. In his mercy, he doesn't treat us according to what our sins deserve. nor repay us according to our iniquities. There is peace even in the midst of disaster. Grace offered and waiting to be experienced even by the vilest of sinners. And so who are the ones who may know this peace, this grace? It is those who we find are humble like Josiah. This is what Huldah tells the humble king. Your humility will be rewarded with mercy. Verse 27. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words. She says, Josiah, your heart was soft before the Lord. It was responsive to his word. It was willing, attentive. I'm not a meat expert, and I don't often tenderize meat unless I'm marinating it, or I know that the particular cut is a tougher meat. But tenderizing is that critical step for such scenarios. Because not only does tenderizing enhance the the texture, the softness of the meat, but it also prepares the meat to absorb the flavors and the seasonings that are being put into it. We see that Josiah's heart was tenderized by the word of God so that he might receive the delight of God's mercy, that he might bask in and worship the God who shows him mercy. His heart was the polar opposite of the heart of the people of Israel who were so often guilty of harboring rebellion and stubbornness. We see it even leads him to weep, adding to what we saw last week. Not only did he tear his clothes, he actually wept before the Lord over his and the people's sin. What we learn here is, as one commentator writes, that self-humbling is always the antidote for forsaking God. And James would tell his audience of scattered Christians the same message in the fourth chapter. Right after he scathes them for warring with one another, for making enemies with God by making friends with the world, what does he tell them? Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So humility was not only the the solution to the problems that they had with each other, but also their problems they had with the Lord. It was their path forward. I don't think it's a shock to say that we live in a culture that is very much consumed with pride. The adoption of this month as what we're being told is Pride Month is Exhibit A. But pride is not only limited to the sinful and corrupt sexual identities that people take in our culture. For we as human beings are experts in taking pride in ourselves, in exalting our talents, our accomplishments, our autonomy. And the truth remains that pride, whether whatever the flavor or the display of it, will destroy. And may our hearts not be convinced otherwise. May we delight in humility. May our hearts always be tender before the Lord and before his word. Because as we see with Josiah, with humility, we find God's mercy. Josiah is told that the fruit of his humble heart is, I have also heard you, declares the Lord. We see that Josiah is receiving that very promise that Solomon said would come, or the Lord said through Solomon would come in 2 Chronicles 7. 
If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. The Lord has told Josiah, I have heard your cry. I will bless, I will show mercy to you. No, mercy doesn't mean judgment's going to be removed or taken away. It's still coming. But mercy does mean it's prolonging. It won't come for you in your day. Josiah will, in God's mercy, be spared from seeing what the covenant was said would come. His eyes would not see the horrors, but his eyes would close in peace. He would be spared. Now, we might not often think that death is God's mercy, but for Josiah and every king, going to your grave in peace with a proper burial was the sign of God's blessing. Only the judged and disgraced kings were left unburied or left buried away from their fathers. Josiah, no, he's not, prom he's not promised that he would escape death. We'll find in a few weeks that his death isn't even going to be a glorious one. It will still humble him. But in God's infinite mercy, he will be spared from the judgment that's coming. He will know peace through the end of his reign. He will die secure in the covenant blessing of his Lord. And here again, we are once more pointed then beyond this son of David, king, and king of Israel, to the greater son and king. Because Jesus Christ is the one who suffered the judgment for our covenant infidelity. It was on him, not on us, though we rightly deserved it, that the full wrath of God was poured out and not quenched. And it is in him that covenant compassion and mercy is promised. In Jesus Christ, we find a shelter of peace in the midst of disaster. Because of Jesus, we can confidently and joyfully sing as we will in a few moments. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. It is absolutely true that the humble ones are those who know the promise of covenant compassion. And the humble ones are those who don't boast in their own merits, but those who boast in the merits of Jesus Christ, the greater son of David, the greater king of Israel. Resting not in their works, not in their accomplishments, but his finished work, his finished accomplishment on the cross. He is, as we just sang, the friend of sinners, saving, helping, keeping, and loving to the very end those who humbly come to him in faith. May we do that. Come to him humbly in faith. If you've never done it before, I would implore you to humbly turn to Christ, cry out for his mercy, and find that he will hear you. And if you are in Christ, continue to humbly cry out for his mercy and then rejoice as he pours it out on you again and again and again. And then sing with full hearts of praise and adoration that our sins are many. They continue to be many. But his mercy is indeed more. Let the covenant compassion of our triune God not only humble you, but drive you to delight in him and to praise his name for his great mercy.
That then brings us to our third and final point, the pursuit then of covenant commitment. We see this in the last five verses. Humility is not simply a passive exercise. It leads to, if not demands, a response. And I personally find it extremely humbling to read what Josiah's response is here in verses 29 through 33. Because remember, Josiah's just been told, judgment's coming, but you're going to miss out. I'll be honest, my human nature would be like, okay, well, that's not too bad. I'll sit back and just kind of wait for that to happen. Wait for me to go and judgment to come. It'd be like those uh, seniors that just graduated high school. You know how you were that last month of school? Sitting back and just waiting for its coming. That would be more like Hezekiah in First King, Second Kings chapter 20. When he was told, judgment's coming, you will be spared. And his response was, well, at least it's not happening on my watch. But as we've seen, as we heard, though, Josiah is a king unlike any who's come before and unlike any who would come after. For he takes this word of judgment, this word of mercy, as an excuse to pursue covenant renewal in the entire kingdom. Because he is convinced that there still remains covenant blessing to be had for obedience. He understands that just because judgment is coming in the future doesn't mean there's mercy to be had in the present. He rejects fatalism, but humbly trusts in the blessings to be had now for keeping covenant and by renewing his and the people's commitment to it. And that's what we see here in these five verses is a covenant renewal ceremony. And we, we, we may be led to ask the question, well, how is it different from the purging and the cleansing that we've seen to this point? Let's walk through it. First, we see that this covenant renewal means a reading of the word of God, only this time in the company of everybody, not just a private reading for the king and the scribe, a public reading for everyone. Josiah's response in hearing the word says, and the king went up to the house of the Lord with, it lists all these people and then ends with all the people, both great and small, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant. We don't know how long it took, but it was probably a long reading. Josiah wants to give the people the same opportunity he had to hear the word of God and respond. To be reminded of who they are as God's people and what he has called them to be as his people. It's hard to put a definitive time stamp on when was the last time the people of Israel heard the reading of God in the company of the gathered community. It was supposed to be a yearly endeavor, but it certainly was not, just given the fact that they found the scroll buried in the temple ruins. And even if we look at other renewals of previous generations like Asa and Hezekiah, what was lacking in theirs was a reading of the word of God. But what we can see here is that in this moment, that famine of the word of God in the place where God's people dwelt has ended. Everyone is now hearing the word of God. Everyone is hearing the blessings that are promised for obedience, as well as the curses that are warned for disobedience. And then second, we see that not only does it include a covenant reading, it includes vows by the leaders and the people. We read, And the king Josiah stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies, his statutes, 
with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. Then he made all who were present join in it. In this display of humility and faithful leadership, Josiah makes a personal vow to follow the covenant. He says, I'm committed. And then he brings the people in with him. And we see here yet again in Josiah a picture of genuine leadership. Josiah doesn't gather the people together and point at them and saying, this is your fault. The reason we're here, the reason judgment's coming is because of all of you. No, he leads by example. He says it's our sin is the reason why we're here. Our sin is the reason why judgment is coming. And then he commits to following the Lord with heart and soul and calls the people to join him. He leads by example. He's the first to make that move. And so there's a call here for, for all of us, but specifically, I'll speak directly to our leaders here at Covenant. Even more specifically, elders and deacons, both active and inactive. This is the kind of faithful leadership that we should be pursuing, that we should be demonstrating. Let us not find satisfaction in simply opening the word and telling people how they should live. That's certainly part of it. But let us be an example, embodying humility before the people, embodying a spirit-given desire to walk faithfully before the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, with all of our mind, as Josiah does here. Because the sad reality is there are countless terrible examples both out of the church, but more painfully in the church, of leaders who don't lead like this. Instead, they lead out of pride, they lead out of arrogance, they lead out of laziness, out of self-service. Let it not be so with us. And then let me extend that call to all who are involved in ministry here. Sunday school teachers, small group leaders, committee chairs, whatever the case may be, lead with humility. And then we extend it even further to fathers, husbands, even wives and mothers. Lead with humility. Lead by example. Do what Josiah called the people to do. Walk after the Lord. Keep his commandments and his testimonies, his statutes with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Because then lastly, we see that renewal means practicing covenant faithfulness it's not just making a vow i'm gonna do it but it's actually going and doing it we read here that josiah then took away all the abominations likely a continuing purging of what's left he scans the land and says where else is there something that needs to be destroyed go destroy it and then he made all who were present in israel serve the lord their god all his days they did not turn away from following the lord the god of their fathers we see that his vow led to action the purge continues. The people are faithful for the remaining 13 years of Josiah's reign. That might not seem like a long time, but in light of how many years they had gone abandoning and forsaking the Lord, 13 is pretty good. We would be blessed to have 13 years of this being told about us. Are they perfect? No, far from it. We'll find that the prophet Jeremiah in 3.7 actually is going to target this generation for falling, stumbling in their half-hearted faithfulness to the Lord. 
They would need constant reminders. They would need even sometimes coercion from their leaders to do what is not only right, but in their best interest. But through these, they would practice, they would learn faithfulness. This is the blessing that we see from leaders leading the people in humility. And this is, frankly, a very high and humble calling. But thankfully, it is not an isolated or powerless one. We are not dependent upon ourselves, but our perfect and faithful King, Jesus Christ. For he has given us his spirit to help work, uh, work out in us a humble response to his word. To help us to renew our vows of obedience and then to actually walk in them. To pursue commitment to him. And the truth of the matter is that each and every Sunday morning as we gather here is a covenant renewal. Every time we gather week in and week out, we are renewing ourselves to the covenant that God has made with us. We hear his word read for us, preached, declared. We confess our failures. We're going to do that before we come to the table and plead for his mercy. We profess the greatness of his mercy and his grace as well as our desire to follow him. We plead with his spirit to give us the help and the strength we need to do so. And then we go out and do it. And then we come back a week later and say, we failed. Renew us again. It is one of the many reasons why scripture tells us not to forsake the gathering. We need this kind of renewal. We should long for it. By the time we get to Saturday night, we shouldn't be thinking, oh, Sunday's coming. We should say, Sunday's coming. I get to renew myself and renew ourselves as the people to commit to the covenant of our God. We can rejoice in this gracious provision that God has given us to gather week in and week out to renew ourselves. And then go out committed to and empowered by his spirit to walk then in faithfulness. Without a doubt, gravity is the great humbler of man. I experienced such a humbling yesterday as I was trying to secure a rope in a tree in our backyard for an upcoming swing. I didn't fall off a ladder. I just want to throw that out there. I'm okay. But we were trying to throw a, a baseball wrapped in rope around the branch and the hook and then pull it through. And lo and behold, my genius system got distracted and the ball went up and the ball did not come down. Um, but I've, I, I've learned that I am not as young as I once was. My arm is not as strong as it, young, as it once was. Gravity is stronger than my arm. But greater than gravity, as we have hopefully seen here in the life of Josiah, is the word of God. It points clearly for us the reality of God's judgment against our sin. But it also highlights the great mercy and grace of our God that he has given us in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And then it calls us to humbly pursue living a life of faithful obedience as his righteous and redeemed people. Not in our own strength, but in the strength he has graciously given to us by his spirit. So may we be a humble people. May we be a reliant people, not on ourselves, but on our good and gracious God. And may it lead us then to be a faithful people. Humility is demonstrated by our recognition and response to the word of God. Let us pray. Father God, would you indeed humble us? 
as we've heard your word, as you've spoken it to us, as you've reminded us that your judgment against sin is very real. That your judgment against our failures is very real, but also just as equally real is your great mercy and grace towards sinners like us in Jesus Christ. God, forgive us for our faithlessness to walk in humility, to walk in faithfulness to you. Renew in us by the power of your spirit. Renew in us by hearing of your word. Renew in us by coming to your table, a desire to obey you, to walk in faithfulness with our heart and with our soul after you. And help us to rejoice in your great mercy. And even though our sins are many, God, your mercy indeed is more. We pray this in the name of our gracious and merciful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.